The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, I'm on the podcast this week. Mark Galliotti explains why Ukraine is becoming a weapons test ground. Katja Hoyer tells us about Germany's extreme monarchists. And Tanya Gold reads her notes on espressos. Up first, Mark Galliotti. The war in Ukraine has become a testing ground for new technology an opportunity to develop weapons and find different ways of fighting. Nations that are supposedly neutral have been sending weapons to the front line to find out just how they work in the heat of battle. This is a relatively new trend in the history of warfare, one that first emerged in the 1936-39 Spanish Civil War. The backers of both sides treated the war as not just a testing range, but also a showroom. The Germans, supporting Franco's nationalists, first tried Blitzkrieg on the Spanish peninsula. Hermann Goering saw the Civil War as a chance to test my young Luftwaffe. The German Condor Legion fielded Messerschmitt fighters and Henkel medium-range bombers, later used by the Germans in the Blitz attacks on London. Also present in Spain was Germany's new 8.8cm flak cannon, whose real-world use helped sell the powerful weapon to Italy and Finland. The Soviets were less strategic in their support for the opposing Spanish Republicans, but even so, thousands of soldiers and airmen gained combat experience and learned what Blitzkrieg felt like from the losing side. Since Vladimir Putin's invasion, Ukraine has become a similar showcase for arms exporters, as well as something of a proxy war between international rivals. From the very start of the war, Ukraine's so-called Alibaba army of commercial off-the-shelf drones bought from the Chinese wholesaler offered it an unexpected edge. The drones were first used for surveillance, but were soon modified to drop grenades or be packed with explosives to slam into Russian targets. The capacity for turning what they had into what they needed has proven to be something of a Ukrainian characteristic, also reflecting their command structures. Whereas the Russians have retained an almost Soviet-style model of rigid, top-down command, the Ukrainians had adopted a flexible style, akin to nation's mission command, whereby the senior officer sets the objective, but gives subordinates much greater scope to decide how to achieve it. A similar commitment to innovation in drone warfare could be seen in last weekend's attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet at Sevastopol, where, for the first time ever, aerial and maritime drones were used in a combined attack. Those water drones were reportedly custom-made using commercial parts, including a motor from a jet ski. It's not just technology that is changing, but tactics too. The introduction of roaming strike teams with anti-tank weapons has severely undermined the Russians' reliance on tanks and armoured vehicles. The Ukrainian Defence Minister, Alexei Reznikov, has gone out of his way to tout weapons and tactics testing as a reason for NATO states to send support. We have a combat testing field in Ukraine during this war, he has said, allowing competition between systems to find advantages and test defects. Many have taken up the offer. 
Latvia's Axtus Pro surveillance drone received its first field test in Ukraine, as did the US's secretive new Phoenix Ghost loitering munition, which flies in circles above the battlefield until it finds a target and crashes into the unsuspecting soldiers below. The US military has also been able to pit its latest electronic warfare systems against the Russians, which one Pentagon official described as priceless. It's impossible really to know how this kind of kit will measure up until it's given a real shakedown against a real opponent. From a military perspective, the loss of munitions is well worth the information gathered in return. In 2020, a British officer involved in Operation Orbital, the UK's capacity-building mission in Ukraine, admitted to me that his men were also learning from the Ukrainians. No one else has the same experience in fighting a modern peer rival in conventional war. I've seen action in Iraq and Afghanistan, I've been under fire, but I've never faced a tank. New forms of warfare have created new markets for arms manufacturers. Turkey's Bayraktar TB2 attack drone was already hailed as the decisive weapon in the 2020 war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Now it has achieved near-cult status as the first star weapon of the Russo-Ukrainian war. So successful was the TB2 in blunting Russia's initial armed thrust towards Kyiv that it became the subject of a catchy little patriotic folk song penned by a Ukrainian soldier at the Defence Ministry's request. Since then, the US-supplied Javelin missile and the lighter British-supplied Enlor anti-tank missile have also acquired cult status. Saint Javelin an image of the Virgin Mary cradling a missile launcher rendered in the style of an orthodox icon has become a meme. There's now a website selling the image on patriotic stickers and clothing to raise money for humanitarian relief in Ukraine. You can't buy advertising like that. On the other side, Russia's deployment of Iranian-built Shahed loitering munitions against the Ukrainian electricity grid is proving a marketing opportunity for Tehran. Sanctions have forced Iran to build its own arms industry, and while it is still limited, it is growing. Traditionally, Iranian weapon sales have suffered because of a lack of market profile and a belief that its relatively simple systems have little use in modern war. However, according to Tehran, since the Shahed's use in Ukraine, 22 countries have expressed an interest in buying it. Suddenly, cheap and cheerful looks tempting. A Shahed costs about £18,000. In its first month using the drone, Russia's swarm bombardments cost Moscow around 10 to 15 million pounds. However, the cost to Ukraine of trying to counter these Iranian drones was an estimated 25 million pounds in air defences. Similarly, part of the Bayraktar's success is its price. Ukrainian forces are willing to risk a drone costing as little as $1 million on missions that the British or Americans, with their multi-million dollar equivalents, wouldn't dare attempt. Price changes the calculus. Nor is this confined to drones. Russia is reportedly running out of the Iskander short-range ballistic missiles it has used to pummel Ukraine cities. It has ordered at least 200 Iranian Fateh-110 and Zolfagar missiles to replenish its stocks. Perversely, this may save Moscow money. An Iskander has a unit cost of around $5 million, but a Fateh-110 just $2.1 million. If they also prove effective on the battlefield, Tehran hopes these two will find new markets. Arms sales are often part of proxy conflicts. As in other wars, where Iran goes, Israel follows. 
The Israelis, conscious of their historic relationship with Putin and his regime, have been reluctant to get too directly involved. Nonetheless, last month, following Russia's Iranian shopping spree, the Israeli Defense Minister, Benny Gantz, agreed to send Ukraine early warning systems for missile strikes. The two countries' intelligence agencies have begun cooperating too, particularly on the performance of Iranian weapon systems. Israel can test its own understanding of Iran's capabilities in someone else's war. The final irony is that just as the Ukrainians are degrading Putin's war machine, the West is learning more about how to defeat it. Beijing is undoubtedly taking note. US intelligence sources are claiming a greater degree of cooperation between Chinese and Russian defense attaches, with Beijing observing the successes of Western systems and also trying to evaluate how to foil them. Washington was keen for the Ukrainians to use their anti-shipping missiles, including the attack by US-made harpoons that sunk a resupply tug in June, precisely to show the Chinese how vulnerable their ships could be were they to attack Taiwan. We are not the only ones learning from this war and looking to what might come next. That was Mark Galliotti. Next, catch a Hoyer. The far right in Germany isn't all angry young men with shaved heads, baseball bats and black boots. There are those who appear respectable, even intellectual. The Reichsbürger movement includes accountants, teachers and academics. Many members are middle-aged. It's a fractured network with vastly diverging worldviews, united in their belief that the current government is illegitimate. The Reichsbürgers claim that the German Empire was not legally abolished when it collapsed at the end of the First World War, and that it therefore continues to exist. To them, the so-called November Revolution of 1918, in which Kaiser Wilhelm II was forced to abdicate, ending the German monarchy, was a coup without a legal basis. The governments that followed, beginning with the Weimar Republic and ending with today's parliamentary democracy, have no right to exist. Today's Bundestag can therefore be overthrown without qualms, even with violence if necessary. While this kind of extremism is still rare, there has long been residual monarchism in Germany. Around 10% of Germans support the restoration of the royals. Among those under 35, that number is nearly 1 in 5. Around 10% of Germans support the restoration of the royals. Among those under 34, that number is nearly 1 in 5. Elizabeth R., arrested last month by state police, is alleged to be one of those extremist Reichsbürgers. She's not how you imagine a terrorist to be. A 75-year-old retired teacher with shoulder-length white hair, pictured carrying her belongings in a brown potato bag. She's accused of plotting to overthrow the incumbent government to restore the German monarchy. Prosecutors say she's the head of a terrorist cell of Reichsbürgers called the United Patriots that attempted to procure weapons and explosives. One of her alleged co-conspirators, a 54-year-old accountant named Sven B, was arrested in April when police found an SS uniform and an AK-47 in a cellar. When questioned by police, he admitted plotting to abduct the health minister Karl Lauterbach, the architect of Germany's lockdown policies. Plans had been drawn up that included the potential need to kill members of Lauterbach's security detail. Next, the group would have formally declared the restoration of the German constitution of 1871, when the country was first unified under Kaiser Wilhelm I. They would have then found a stand-in for the current president or chancellor, who they could use to confer legitimacy on their revolutionary restoration.
Finally, the plan involved countrywide blackouts, brought about by an attack on the national electricity grid. The idea was to create chaos and cut the population off from the media so that the new German government can begin its work unimpeded. Sven B. assumed that parts of the police and the army would be supportive of the plan. It's an idea that isn't as far-fetched as it sounds. A few years ago, a group of German commandos was disbanded when a far-right sergeant major was discovered with assessed song sheets and thousands of rounds of ammunition buried in his garden. He had a plan, said the parliamentary commissioner for the armed forces at the time, and he's not the only one. Sven B. wanted to be sure that Vladimir Putin too was on his side. He admitted contacting the Russian president, but wasn't sure whether his message had got through. Elizabeth R., who is known as the Countess in the movement, was supposedly destined for a role in this new government. There are other monarchist groups that lobby for a restoration of the Hohenzollern dynasty that once ran the country. One, Ewiger Bund, makes its own passports in a pre-1914 style, which it then attempts to get stamped by a member of the old aristocratic families to gain citizenship of a lost imperial Germany. Many see Georg Friedrich, Prince of Prussia, and the great-great-grandson of Willem II as the only legitimate ruler of the country. Elements within German society have long been susceptible to the esoteric. Biodynamic agriculture, which can involve practices such as burying bullhorns full of quartz next to crops, has its largest following in Germany. Many former East Germans still believe that HIV is a man-made virus resulting from a disinformation campaign run by the Stasi and the KGB in the 1980s. Other, more insidious elements have adopted parts of the American QAnon philosophy, mixing COVID conspiracies with theories about a secret global government. Some believe that it is Donald Trump's destiny to free Germany from supposed foreign occupation, allowing Germans to abolish parliamentary democracy. According to a 2020 survey, more than half of the voters of the far-right party, Alternative für Deutschland, believe that the world is controlled by secret powers. As do 45% of non-voters. The AFD now leads the polls in the eastern parts of the country and is the fourth largest party nationally, with 15%. Not all its voters subscribe to conspiracy theories, but the party often panders to such fears. Kerstin Kurditz, a spokeswoman for the far-left party Die Linke in Saxony, has argued that the authorities are still underestimating the problem of these extremist monarchists. She's right, but there are problems too with how the German state reacts to dissidents. According to the Constitution, ratified in 1949, any attempt to change the country's political framework is prohibited. The so-called Eternity Clause, enshrining an unchanging constitution, has led to Kurditz's own socialist party coming under investigation by the security services. The AFD is being monitored on suspicion of counter-constitutional behaviour. For those inclined towards conspiratorial thinking, strict policing of politics confirms their fears about the state. Repression risks turning the weird into the dangerous. That was Katja Hoyer. And finally, Tanya Gold. According to excerpts from Out of the Blue, the cursed biography of Liz Truss by Harry Cole and the spectator's James Heal. Truss is dependent on two things for comfort, Instagram and espresso. On a trade delegation to New Zealand, she'd had so much coffee and just wasn't interested in meeting the ambassador. Coffee is from Ethiopia. Its origins as a foodstuff are murky, but the best legend is about a goat herd called Chaldi, who in the mid-9th century 
noticed that his goats ate black beans and became manic and sleepless. Essentially, they started dancing. From there, coffee spread to Egypt, Syria, Turkey and Persia. But when coffee met Christianity, there was the moral panic that reliably comes when a powerful new stimulant is found. It was called the bitter invention of Satan. Venetian clergy condemned it. They were more emotionally dependent on religious-themed portraiture, to be fair, but Pope Clement VIII liked it, and it took over from wine and beer. I fantasised that most pre-modern people were drunk all the time, and who can blame them? But with coffee, you do not meet your hangover at lunch. It rose in Western Europe in the new coffee houses, alongside news, which is another drug. Coffee and news belong together, as Truss acknowledges. Coffee is now the second most traded commodity in the world after crude oil. They aren't so different. One is for machines, the other is for people. Ethiopians mixed coffee beans with animal fat and ate them. Turks crushed them in water and boiled them. The French dripped hot water through them. The Germans invented the filter system. The Italians, the three-part stovetop mocha pot, which I favour, while the Swiss created the convenient and disposable coffee pod, which is a metaphor for our times. I fret that all that will be left of our civilization in a million years will be buried coffee pods and disposable nappies. What will aliens say? Espresso was born in Venice in the early 20th century when Luigi Bezzera used steam to force boiling water through finely ground coffee. Venice first tried to destroy coffee and later gave us her purest form. It does not surprise me that this is Truss's drug. It is speed for people reluctant to break the law, find the dream and chase it to its end. Unexpected rise and rapid fall, coffee is a metaphor for her life. It makes you bold, aggressive, unable to hear. It is another anaesthetic and another shell. She should have gone to where it is grown. The espresso at the coffee shop on the Blue Mountain in Jamaica made my eyeballs cold and my tongue shrivel. Racing from photo shoot with Union Jack umbrella and bicycle to coffee cup paints a life. Trust dreams deeply and she dreams alone. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson and do join me again next week. Bye.